Hello and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon and today I'm doing a solo podcast today. No guests today. Later in the week we're going to have Taylor Silva on to talk NFL playoffs. Uh, we have a very exciting week 17 and we have some good playoff matchups this upcoming weekend on Saturday. We got the Bills against the Texans. And we got Titans-Patriots Saturday night. And then on Sunday, we have the Seahawks facing off against the Eagles, Vikings-Saints, and we got Seahawks-Eagles. So those should be really good games. Uh, Excited to get Taylor's perspective on them, especially as a Saints fan, what he thinks of seeing Kirk Cousins in the playoffs. Uh, So that will be really exciting. But hey, we had a very exciting week of football in the college ranks. We had the college football playoff. So that was on this past Saturday. We had the two games. We had LSU, Oklahoma, and Ohio State, Clemson. I was correct on both of my predictions that LSU and Clemson would would win these games. Uh, The first game, let's just, you know, jump right into it, was was LSU, Oklahoma. LSU destroyed uh, and dominated, really, Oklahoma the entire game. They they ended up winning 63-28. And this one is, was over really, really early. Uh, Joe Burrow had seven touchdowns passing in, in the first half, uh, which is just you know unheard of and an obscene number of touchdowns against you know a top five team in the entire country. And what it he just absolutely dominated the football game. He he came right out and just was hitting different receivers. He was throwing the ball deep down the field. He was throwing on the run, and it was Oklahoma couldn't do anything uh, against him. Burrow finished 29 for 39 for 493 yards, seven touchdowns, zero interceptions, and he ran for 21 more yards on five carries and another touchdown. So he had eight total touchdowns. This was a, a legendary moment. Pe- people talk about during the regular season what's the Heisman moment for for these guys who ended up winning the Heisman like Joe Burrow did. And I think it was that last drive against Alabama. He played awesome that whole game, but it was that last drive where he got that, he let him down the field and didn't let Alabama get the ball back. And he ran for that first down. That was a huge, huge play. And this was another Heisman legendary moment for Joe Burrow in his, in his career. Seven touchdowns passing in the first half in a playoff game to send his team to the national championship is going to be talked about for decades to come down in Baton Rouge and from the college football fans around the country. It's it's you know it's surprising that it's here you know here's a guy who transferred from Ohio State was solid last year, but no one really thought that much of him coming to this season. Of oh Joe Burrow is going to win the Heisman or Joe Burrow is the number one pick. He's a solid SEC quarterback. Maybe LSU can make the playoff, but. It was definitely not going to be on the shoulders of Joe Burrow, and you know you have to give all the credit to him for working really hard and improving every single year and just getting better. And you got to credit Coach O for hiring Joe Brady and you know changing the offense and taking the reins off and letting Burrow just do his thing and and attacked. And the other thing about LSU is that we remember Max Hassan was talking about was that their their defense is that it's still unknown really how good the LSU defense is because it's Oklahoma didn't really challenge them and part of it is you know did Oklahoma not challenge them or was the defense really good because at halftime it was 49 to 14 and they were scoring every time on offense it there there was times where during the game where where Joe Burrow had more touchdowns than Jalen Hurts had completions and I don't know if that's the credit entirely to the LSU defense per se or because I think I think a little bit is or was it just that Jalen Hurts in Oklahoma came out really slow again in a big bowl game and that's kind of what I want to talk about in a second when I, when I focus on on Oklahoma but the defense you know, th- this game could have been a, a shootout early but the defense was very physical and it was very good or early on and forced Oklahoma to punt a lot and just gave the ball back to the offense. It felt like LSU was scoring every time because they had the ball so much was that Oklahoma couldn't really do anything on offense in the first half. Uh, I mean, they, they held Oklahoma to just over 300 total yards of offense, and that's going to win a lot of football games. LSU clearly looked like the best team in the country, too. 
Uh, they were the number one seed coming in. They're now 14-0. and They are the best football team in the country. They should win the national championship when it's played in, in two weeks. This team is incredible. This, this, this offense is insane. And I'm looking forward to really diving into the, the matchups of who against Clemson and where the advantage is because Trevor Lawrence is a, is, is a different is a different beast, uh, a different animal, and we'll see what what happens. But I would, you know, I would expect, and I'm guessing that LSU should be favored going into that game, and that LSU, uh, it, w- it would take a lot for me to think that Clemson will win that game. But you know, Clemson hasn't lost in in two seasons, so uh, I definitely think that they could very easily win. But this is a great matchup. Going over to, to Oklahoma for a second. They are clearly not the fourth best team in the country. You talk about with the playoff that it's of trying to get the four best teams in the country. That's not really what it does. It's the four most qualified teams in the country because there has to be some reward for winning your conference. And the way that we decided as the playoff committee and everything is that if, is that if you win your conference and you're a major power five school and you win your conference, you basically are in the top five. Uh, you saw that with Oregon. Oregon wins the Pac-12, and they move up to, I think that they're number five, but but uh, Utah. If Utah won, they were number five. If Utah won the Pac-12, they would have been in the playoff. Oklahoma wins the Big 12, they're in the playoff. Georgia is probably a better team than, than Oklahoma. Maybe even Alabama's a better team than Oklahoma. Like, I don't think this Oklahoma team would finish in the top four of the SEC, but that's also because they recruit to win in, in the Big 12. And, and and that's the thing is that they just don't have the depth that these SEC teams have. So when guys get suspended, you know, they had a guy, a couple of guys in the secondary get suspended before the game. And they had a couple injuries during the game on the offensive line. And then, and then, in, and then in the secondary, it hurts them more than it would hurt an LSU or a Georgia or an Alabama because they just, the, that lack of depth. So as soon as they lost those guys in the secondary, it was just it became even easier for Joe Burrow to completely pick them apart and dominate the game. And you know, you 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 wonder where where they you know everyone wants to know where do you go from from here. And Lincoln Riley will will, will be back. I don't think he's going to the NFL. I don't think any of the jobs are really that appealing to him. What, what is he going to do? He's going to go to Cleveland and inherit that disaster and try to coach up that crazy team and, and that dysfunctional or organization. It's, you know, he's at a great spot. He's with Oklahoma. I think the key is, you know, he's, he's a good recruiter. The, they have to keep recruiting and keep recruiting the guys at these positions and to help win the line of scrimmage against these SEC teams. And people always think, well, how can they compete in, in the SEC in, in recruiting? Well, Clemson now does. And Clemson wasn't always this good. Clemson under Davos Sweeney has gotten better and better and better to now they can really recruit anyone in the country. And what Oklahoma has to do is just steadily just improve and improve and focus on not just getting these great skill position guys, because it seems like every year they always have a fun quarterback, great wide receivers, a, a good running back, but their offensive and defensive lines is where they need to really, really bulk up because that's how you compete against these great teams. You have to compete at, at the line of scrimmage and then you have depth all over the field. And they will get there, I think, but um, it hurts. And also just just to keep a positive spin on it, so last year, even though they had Kyler Murray, they lose to Tua in the playoff game. So they got Tua, and then they got Joe Burrow. Those are probably two of the best quarterbacks this decade in college football, and they just ran into them. So there's a little bit of bad luck there, too. So I'm looking forward to seeing what Oklahoma does going going forward and seeing what quarterback they bring in next year because they've had three straight years with different quarterbacks. They had Baker Mayfield, obviously, two, three years ago. Then they had Kyler Murray for one year, and then they had Jalen Hurts this past year for for one year. So we'll see if Spencer Rattler's the guy next year or if there are someone else in the grad, market, grad transfer market or the transfer market who they want more. Then we're going to go to Clemson. My big question, so Clemson won this game. So Clemson played Ohio State. It was a great, great game, the opposite of LSU-Oklahoma. This one was tight pretty much throughout the set, once, like midway through the second quarter on. And it was a great ending, great game. Uh, and clearly these two teams were two of the 
five best teams in college football. They clearly looked like they belonged on the same field together. And really, either team could have could have won this game. So Clemson ends up winning, and but they went down. They were down sixteen nothing early. And my question about them going forward is, why do they start so slow? Because this will hurt them against LSU. Because LSU will convert those into those extra possessions into touchdowns, and they were able to hold Ohio State to field goals. That was a big thing. They only gave one touchdown, and then they gave up. Let's see, one, two, three field goals. So that will hurt them against LSU because the LSU offense, I think, is better than Ohio State's offense. And if they don't score for three or four possessions against LSU, it's 21 or 24 to nothing instead of 16. And that's a, you know, it's eight more points to, to come back from. So going forward, they, they, they need to start faster. And maybe it's just because they haven't played anyone this good, so it just took them a while to remember, hey, like we're playing against an, an elite team. This is kind of how we have to play. But I'm excited to see what they do against LSU. And mainly I'm excited to see what Trevor Lawrence does. Trevor Lawrence reminded everyone on Saturday night just how good he was and that how much he's gotten better from last year. It was hard because if people were saying if Trevor Lawrence – sat out after the national championship game last year for his final two seasons of college football, he would still be picked number one. And I actually believe that. He is the prototypical six foot six, can make every throw on the field. But what he proved this past Saturday was that he's so much tougher than people give him credit for, people think he is, with the way he was able to run the ball. He took some massive, massive hits. You know, everyone will talk about his 70-yard touchdown run that really changed the momentum of the game, and that was an incredible play. But what impressed me the most was just how much he was getting hit and just kept getting back up and back up and back up. And he, you know, the, the, he ran the ball a lot. He's, he's a lot tougher and a lot stronger than he was last year. And the, you know, he's only going to get tougher and stronger as, as he gets older. So that was really impressive. And I'm excited to see what they do, what wrinkles they throw in for LSU, because they put in some great wrinkles last year for, for Tua. So it'll be interesting to see what they do for another great quarterback in Joe Burrow. Ohio State. I'm actually pretty optimistic about it, mainly because you get another field, another year with Justin Fields, and it'll be only year two with Ryan Day. And so even though they lose a lot in Chase Young from what people were saying was the greatest Ohio State team ever, they lose a lot on the defense because they lose, they obviously lose Chase Young, the exceptional pass rusher, but you guys have lost pass rushers before. You lost the, the, the Bosa brothers in back-to-back years, and you guys you know, reload. And I know Jeff Okuda is going to be a really top round pick, but you have other guys in in the secondary who can step up to, to the challenge. Obviously it's to be seen, but they still have a ton of talent. So I'm actually excited to see what Ohio State does next because a lot of times you got to get it back into these games. And this losing, this really close game, I think will be only a positive for the guys coming back because now they'll know what it takes and they'll learn from this is that, hey, we have to score touchdowns. We have to convert. We can't keep these really, really great teams just hanging around. We, we, we can't let them just hang around and hang around. we got to put them away. we got to put them away early. That's what LSU did against Oklahoma. LSU put them away. That game was over in the second quarter. Ohio State could have ended this football game in the second quarter. They could have been up 28 to nothing in, in the middle of the second quarter, and Clemson would have had – Clemson would have been out of it. It would have taken the one of the greatest comebacks in the history of football for them to come back and, and win the game. So I think Ohio State will, will learn a lot from this one, and I'm excited to see what happens going forward. So moving on, we, we talked to college football. We're going to dive more deeply into the championship game as that, can, as that gets closer. I think that will be on January 13th. So I'm recording this on New Year's Eve. Last day of the decade, I thought it was only fitting to do top 10 moments of the decade, uh, mainly because I think decade and reviews are fun because you forget a lot of things that happen early on in the decade because everyone's so focused with the, you know, what, with recency bias and everyone's so focused on what happened this past year and the last two years of, oh, that's the, one of the greatest plays of all time or the greatest teams of all time. It's, it's interesting to go back and look at throughout the whole decade of different things that are happening. So these are my top 10 moments of the decade. This is 2010 to 2019. And a lot of these are obvious. Some I think are not so obvious, but uh, I had a lot of fun putting this together. And I'm excited to 
to get going with it. So my number 10 moment covered heavily and brilliantly by ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast series hosted by Ramona Shelburne was Donald Sterling selling the Clippers in 2014. This was incredible, and I, and I don't want to take away from the 30 for 30 about it, because really, if, if, if you want to learn about it and really dive deep into it, that series is brilliant. It was brilliantly done. It's, it's a great listen. It's so interesting. But when you think about this whole decade, it was the Clippers became cool when they had Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan doing Lob City. That was the first time they were cool ever. But in the background, they always had this terrible, terrible owner. And it comes out that he's a, you know, a huge racist. And people within the, the league, it was reported, kind of knew that. And people in, in L.A. obviously knew that from him being a real estate developer and a real estate, just like all the houses he owned and the different properties he owned. People always knew that there was more hidden beneath the surface and different discriminatory things about him. But then it all came to light during the playoffs, too, in 2014, where this Clippers team was, A, really good, and they were having they, they probably had a chance to advance deep in the postseason. And it was the biggest distraction. And not just, I, you know, I think distraction is, 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 is an unfair term because this isn't because everyone was asking the players, like, well, like, what were they going to do? Were they going to boycott the game? Were they going to play? What, what type of protest would, would they do? And, and, you know, these are guys who are competing and trying to win an, an NBA championship. They're, they're in the playoffs. They're in a tough, tough series against the Warriors going back and forth. And all of a sudden they're having team meetings with Doc Rivers and amongst the team of what are we going to do? What, you know, what are we going to do? And I think it was a missed opportunity because looking back, their, their protest of turning their shirts inside out and putting the warm-ups uh, all, all at half court, uh, I think that was a, a good gesture in the moment. But I think as time has gone on, maybe we wish we could have had a more of a more of a you know a, a stronger reaction. I don't know if it was ever re- realistic that they were ever going to boycott the game, especially such an important playoff game. But I, I just think that that's a really important moment in this past decade of the NBA because what then it led to is that the team gets sold to Steve Ballmer the former Microsoft executive who hires smart people. He keeps Doc Rivers. He hires Jerry West, and they start building this team and reloading and, and making tons of moves to give themselves the position this past summer to go get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And now the Clippers are really cool. They're really fun, and they're the best team in the Western Conference. And they very well could go win on the champ- go win the championship this year. And that would have been unheard of with Donald, with Donald Sterling because he never invested what, what it took. And Steve Ballmer approved trading all the picks and paying these guys. So I think that's a, that a really important moment. Number nine, Steve Kerr being hired by the Warriors in 2014 to be the head coach. I think this was such a crucial moment in this decade of the NBA because the Warriors team was at a crucial, crucial inflection point. Mark Jackson had coached this team and really improved them a lot defensively. And they were under new ownership. The, Joe Lacob had, had bought the team and, and, and had taken over by, by this point. And Mark Jackson, what, what he was doing was he turned the Warriors into a fun but bad NBA team that you would enjoy catching on league pass because Steph and Monta Ellis could score, you know, 60 points on, on any night. They went from – Mark Jackson took them from, from that to a team competing in the second round of the playoffs. And people forget Mark Jackson was the first one who dubbed them the Splash Brothers, Clay, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry, and said that they are the two best sh- shoot shooters ever and the best shooting backcourt ever. People for, forget that was Mark Jackson, but it was a crucial inflection point. They, they lose to the – they lose in the second round of the playoffs in 2014. And it was kind of clear that Mark Jackson wasn't the right guy going forward. He got him to this point, but was he the guy to take him over the top? And, and, and what did they need? So going so after they, they fired Mark Jackson, the two main candidates that, that they had, in, in their mind, 
was obviously Steve Kerr and then Stan Van Gundy. And I, I think it's a great, great what if in NBA history for the past decade is if the Warriors went with Stan Van Gundy. Because what Steve Kerr did was that Steve Kerr empowered Steph Curry to become the Stephen Curry he is today. And he completely said, be yourself, take these crazy shots. You should be taking all these threes. This is how we have to play. And I don't know if that would have happened under Stan Van Gundy. Would the Warriors have become the Warriors if Stan Van Gundy was the, was the coach? Maybe, maybe, right? The extremely talented Steph Curry was Steph Curry. But I think as much as you have to credit Steph Curry for, for how hard he worked, to become the player he is, but it was also the perfect, perfect system, and he had the perfect head coach at the perfect point of his career to let Steph Curry become Steph Curry and literally break basketball in the 2014-15, 2015-16 seasons where he won the, 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 his two MVPs. And I don't know if that would have happened if Stan Van Gundy or someone else became the coach in Golden State. And then also you have to think about Steve Kerr turned down the Knicks, too. Like, if Steve Kerr went and coached the Knicks, that would have been such a disaster. Steve Kerr is thought of now that as one of the best coaches, maybe in the history of the NBA, definitely the one of the best coaches in, in, in a long time because he's coached championships and he's won championships. And if he had coached the Knicks, what would we think of Steve Kerr? Because so much of it is situations in, in professional sports or college sports. And if he went and he was terrible because the, that team and that situation is terrible and they lost a lot of games over two years and he got fired, he'd be back on TNT doing, doing games. And we wouldn't think of Steve Kerr as this brilliant, brilliant coach. And I don't know. I've, I think that's a great sliding doors what-if moment in, in this past decade of, of the NBA. Number eight, sticking with the Warriors, Steph Curry's three-pointer against Oklahoma City in I think February of 2016. So I remember exactly where I was and what I had done this entire day leading up to this, this shot. I was a senior in high school, we just played a game, and or I had basketball that day. I forget if it was a game or practice. Or, Okay, so I don't remember exactly, but I remember that night. My, me and my dad, we went out. We had we had a great dinner, and we came back to the house. And ESPN was launching for the first time this year. Was the Saturday night winter prime time uh, NBA games, and the first Saturday night game I remember dialing into for this one was it was the Warriors, who were on pace to win seventy three games playing against the Oklahoma City Thunder in Oklahoma City. And this was a crucial, crucial game uh, because it just really, truly put Steph Curry on the map as this dude has broken basketball. So the Warriors coming into this game were 52-5. and 52-5. Five. and five. And the Thunder were 41 and 17. The Thunder were also having a great, great season. But the Warriors were having the greatest season of all time. And the Thunder were up the whole the, the, the Thunder were up and it was going back and forth. And Steph Curry literally set Twitter on fire. He set the NBA basketball world on fire, and he broke basketball officially in this game. So Steph Curry played 37 minutes. He was 14 for 24 from the field, 12 of 16 for three, six from eight from the free throw line. He had 46 points and six assists in 37 minutes. And he did this on the road, and the shot he hit in overtime where He's dribbling the ball up the court on, 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 on the left side. And the whole time you're like, there's no way he's going to shoot it. There's no way he's going to shoot it. He's way too far out. And he shoots it from a distance where no one else would have thought was possible. But the second he was going up to shoot, no one thought that the ball was not going to go in. Everyone knew and assumed that the ball was going to go in. He's he's might be the only guy who, from wherever he shoots and whatever angle, you just assume that the ball is going to go in. And that shot... <laughs> that that shot broke 
broke what I thought was possible on the basketball courts because I was, you know, you're getting used to seeing on this crazy, crazy season the Warriors were having Steph Curry do incredible things that you've never seen before. But that was the only first time I'd ever seen a player dribble up and shoot such a big shot in overtime with multiple seconds on the clock where he didn't have to shoot. It wasn't like there was one second on the clock. He was like, he was going down the court. Like this is like, just, okay, where I'm just getting in a range, get, get in a range. And it was the, you know, you, you see the defender. He's like, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And then he rises up and shoots it. And everyone's like, Oh my God, you gave him too much space. It was, it was the first time I really wondered is, do you have just have to guard Steph Curry at, at half court? Because I think that, that I think this three was from like thirty five ish feet, and it was just money. He wins the game in in Oklahoma City, a huge huge win for them, and that's one of the most important moments of the decade because it because it was the signature win of the Warriors regular season. I thought on their seventy three and nine record breaking season, and it was it's one of the signature moments for Stephen Curry where he truly truly arrived, and that was his MVP moment where. This was his MVP game. Talk about the Heisman moment with Joe Burrow. This was the moment and the game where Steph Curry, I think, truly, truly clinched his unanimous back-to-back MVP award after the season. Number seven, I got LeBron James winning his first NBA championship against the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Oklahoma City Thunder did not have a great decade on this list. There was a lot of a lot of bad things that happened against Oklahoma City it occurred on this list. And another one was LeBron's first championship in 2012. In June 2012, LeBron finally wins that that elusive first championship that he went all the way for to Miami searching for. And this is one of the crucial moments of the decade because this is the best player of the generation winning the winning what people thought that he could maybe could never do and was kind of just waiting for him to do because he is being compared to Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson during his time in Cleveland, obviously has the decision, goes to Miami, and they don't just lose that finals against the Mavericks, but LeBron just played so terribly, especially late in a lot of those games, that you really wonder, does this guy have it? That was the... That was the talking point that whole off season. Oh, LeBron, you know, can only give you three quarters, and he's not clutch, and he can't do it in the fourth, and he's all hype, and he's not Michael Jordan, he's not this, he's he's more Karl Malone, and you can never count on him in, in in the big moments. And LeBron squashed that the the next year, and he wins that first championship. He had a very good finals, an insane playoffs where it was sealed by that crazy game in Boston, game six of the Eastern Conference Finals, where he shows up against in the Boston Garden and has his eyes, you know, his pupils just has a creepy, weird look on his face that looked like he didn't care, but the most determined at the same time. And you really wondered if he had checked out or if he just didn't care anymore. LeBron James came out and dominated that game. I think that gave him the confidence to go out and do that in the finals against Oklahoma City. And that's a huge moment, too, because this was the Oklahoma City team that makes the finals in 2012. In 2011, 2012, they have Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. The assumption is, okay, they made it. This is that that first loss, just like in NBA history, where it takes, you got to climb the mountain, you got to climb the mountain, and there's challenges before you get to the true apex, and that this Thunder team would be back for the next decade or so. Well, they trade James Harden after the season. And we'll talk later about the Durant thing, but that team was never the same afterwards. So I think it's really interesting going back, looking at that finals, just another great moment of what if that Thunder team won that championship, what that would mean for such a small market in, in a small city in, in Oklahoma City and what it would have meant for LeBron because the heat would have broken up if they don't win that, win that championship and LeBron maybe never would have escaped that ridicule of, going and forming a super team and, and not winning. Number six, I got Kawhi Leonard's buzzer beater versus Philly in the 2019 Eastern Conference semifinals. 
This shot happened during an episode of Game of Thrones. I remember I did a podcast with Kelly, and we were talking about it, and he asked, because he had watched it live, obviously, and I, as a true Thrones addict, decided to watch Game of Thrones live uh, and just follow the game on Twitter and just and see what happened. And I thought, I thought something serious had happened when I just... So I started getting all these notifications about Kawhi and texts about Kawhi this, Kawhi that. And it turned out that he had had the greatest buzzer beater maybe in playoff history as a true, true buzzer beater. Not the best shot. You know, you have Michael Jordan game six against the Jazz. Michael Jordan against against the Cavs. You have you have so many great playoff moments, uh, playoff shots that were that were so big. Obviously, Magic Skyhook in, in the 84 finals. This was a true buzzer beater that hit the rim four times, and everything about it was perfect. They're at home. This is the best player in in the NBA, I think, who had taken so many shots, and he takes such a fadeaway over Joel Embiid, who's humongous, seven foot two, and the does it right in front of his bench, and like he crouches and he's watching of the bounce and the bounce and the bounce, and the ball goes in, and it's such a great moment. You see Kawhi, who's usually such such a reserved. Uh, player and person who you don't see a lot of emotion, he starts screaming out in joy, and you see the despair on the Sixers' faces. You have Embiid crying in, in the locker room because he cares so much about it. And you know this was the end of the Sixers. You know you, you knew they couldn't bring everyone back, and this was a huge, huge moment for the Raptors too because they bring in Kawhi to get past this round for so many years with Demar Derozan and Kyle Lowry. It was the Raptors could never get over the hump in the Eastern Conference, and it was always LeBron who always knocked them out. And it was like, okay, we have Kawhi. This is a chance to be different, a chance to have a different outcome to our season. And if they don't win that game, A, we think of Kawhi a lot differently, and B, it means a lot more for Philly too. But then C, it's the same story with Toronto. If Toronto is that team this decade that was the that was the biggest tease. They were you know, they were the team that was good, but never good enough. And they would have, I think if they don't win that game, they obviously don't bring back Kawhi. I don't think Kawhi would have had any chance of resigning. And then they also, I think, completely blow it up. And I think Masai Ujiri would have traded Kyle Lowry. They would have let go of Marcus Saul. They would have been a complete, complete rebuild of this isn't working. Even when we bring in Kawhi Leonard, there's, we just need to to start over. And I think that's what would have happened if Kawhi didn't have a buzzer beater that hit the rim four times and drop in perfectly because they go on to, to beat Milwaukee and, and win the title. But if they lose in round two, I don't think this Raptors team would have been anything. It would have been built completely around Pascal Siakam. They would have been tanking and probably would have, who knows if Nick Nurse would have come back. It would have been a, a huge, huge change in in Toronto. But instead, and, and I think that that change only happens if they lose in that round. Because I think if they they lose to Milwaukee, I think it's still, okay, you know, Giannis, we had a great season. And obviously if they lose in, in the finals to the Warriors, it's okay, well, the Warriors are the Warriors. We're really good. And we had a great year. But it's just, it's that idea of, of the second round of being your good playoff team, but not one of the two best in, in your conference. Is that it's time to, to change. So... That buzzer beater I have at number six. Number five, the most improbable NBA story of the decade, Lynn Sanity. Do people remember this? So this happened all the way back in 2012. It was February of 2012. On February 4th, the New York Knicks were playing against the New Jersey Nets. That's right. The Nets were still in New Jersey. The Knicks were still being coached by Mike D'Antoni. This was the lockout shortened season. The Knicks were playing, uh, I think it was their third game in a row or the second of a back-to-back or fourth and five nights. It was, it was, it was something, it was some crazy because that schedule was so condensed. And Jeremy Lin had played 55 minutes up, up to this point in the entire season. Mike D'Antoni needed a spark. The Knicks had lost 11 of the last 13 heading into this one. D'Antoni was probably getting fired. He just said, all right, screw it. We just need someone. Like We're giving everyone a chance. Like 
if they didn't, you know, they talk about afterwards that if Lynn, they were going to just, they give him a chance, and if he didn't play well, they're going to cut him. Uh, Jeremy Lynn goes out, plays 36 minutes, scores 25 points, has seven assists and, and five rebounds, and the Knicks win the game. They win the game. And it started Lynn Sanity, where then he came out and he had won another game against the Jazz. And then he goes and he plays the Washington Wizards, and he played really, really well. And he had a big dunk in, in that game. And then, you know, he came out of, he came out of nowhere. And the, the, the moment where it truly became, as they said, Lynn Zane in New York, was they had the Lakers coming to town on Friday night, a national televised game on ESPN. Kobe Bryant comes comes into the game and you know he was talking trash before the game, saying that he didn't know who who Jeremy Lin was. He couldn't answer any of the reporters' questions about Jeremy Lin because he truly didn't know who he was. And Jeremy Lin scores thirty eight points, and the Knicks beat the Lakers. And then on Valentine's Day, a few days later, he hits a game winning three pointer in Toronto. Not a true buzzer beater. There's still like a couple tenths of a second, but a game winner again. And he was incredible. Just just incredible and got the Knicks into the playoffs with his wins because Carmelo was out, Amari Stoudemire was out. Without Jeremy Lin, that Knicks team is terrible. And just the most improbable undrafted out of Harvard People forget what a global news story that was. The importance of him being an Asian-American player, uh, I think, is is overlooked. And he really, and he proved that he belongs in the league and that really that if anyone in the NBA gets a shot, they can truly prove that they belong. It shows how even the last, last guy on the bench could go out and be the best player on the court for three weeks straight and then have a go have a go have a great career because Jeremy Lin now is an NBA champion. He's bounced around. He was with the Rockets, then with the Lakers, the Nets, the Hornets, the Raptors. But he is an NBA champion and no one can take that away from from him. Number four, Ray Allen's corner three pointer in game six of the 2013 finals for the Miami Heat versus the San Antonio Spurs. This is an all-time great shot in the playoffs. I was talking before about the Kawhi buzzer beater. This shot was huge because if Ray Allen misses this shot, the Spurs win the championship. LeBron and the Heat are one and two in finals, and Duncan wins his fifth. But this shot, not just in terms of the difficulty of the shot because LeBron misses a three, Chris Bosh grabs a rebound, grabs the offensive rebound, and kicks out to a backpedaling Ray Allen, who doesn't even look down, but he backpedals perfectly into the corner because he's a maniac and works so hard and practices that exact thing of backpedaling to the corner and knowing exactly where he was on the court, knowing he had both feet behind the line and in bounds, catches, rises up, fires, perfect switch, tie game, we're going to overtime where the Heat would go on to win and they would go on to, to win the series and, and win the championship. This shot will go down in NBA history as one of the greatest shots ever. And it's an, you know the LeBron haters will say that Ray Allen bailed out LeBron because LeBron bricked a three and it was Bosch's rebound and then it was Allen's shot. But what it came down to for me was another what-if sliding doors moment because obviously the Spurs... If they win this, it's Duncan's fifth. Uh, they don't come back the next year as as motivated. And who knows if that would have happened or if the Kawhi Finals MVP would have happened. Uh, and the who knows with Duncan and Popovich and, and Ginobili. But this was such a huge shot because, it's again, that's another Miami dynasty saver. It was a huge, huge comeback in that fourth quarter. It was in the finals. And it was, I don't know, it was just, you, you remember where you were and what you were doing when, when you watched that live and, and when the ball went in and just how crazy it was. And it showed like, and it also just showed, hey, Popovich, why was Tim Duncan not in the game? You take your best defender, best rebounder out, 
Chris Bosh is able to sky in, grab and rip the offensive rebound and kick out to Allen. And it was it was just an incredible, incredible play and just an incredible shot and one of the the greatest shots in NBA history. So, so that's why it's, it's number four on my list. Number three, Kevin Durant announces his next chapter, July 4, 2016. Kevin Durant announced in a Players' Tribune essay that he had he was that his next chapter was not with Oklahoma City, but that he was leaving Oklahoma City to go join the Golden State Warriors, and not just the goal, any Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors, who had just won 73 games in the regular season and who had just knocked out his Oklahoma City Thunder in the Western Conference Finals. This moment is so crucial because it happened in 2016. It re- completely reshaped the next four, the next three years of the entire league because the Warriors were deemed unbeatable. They now had two MVPs. They had Steph Curry and Kevin Durant completely in, in their primes. They had Klay Thompson. They had the greatest, the, maybe the three best shooters, the best shooting team ever. Added with Draymond Green. They had four all-stars, a great coach, and, and Steve Kerr. The idea was Durant playing with Steph Curry was like the greatest duo ever, the best maybe since Scotty and Mike in the 90s for the Bulls. And it was also so highly criticized too. It was the biggest, you know, people start calling Durant the biggest snake in the NBA. Uh, He was not just bailing, he was just chasing titles and that anything he won in Golden State would never truly be his. It was because he would always be joining the Warriors. He'd always be on Steph's team. And a lot of that actually turned out to be true, is that no one criticized him for the basketball or the life part of it, of, hey, this is a guy who played 10 years in Oklahoma City. He's going to the Bay Area. He apparently has all these interests off the court, and he likes investing, and he wants to get into tech and all this stuff. Hey, the Bay Area is where you want to be for this. It's a great place to live now. It's one of the most popular cities in, in or areas in the entire country. Who could blame a 27 or 28-year-old for wanting to go live there as a multi-multi-millionaire? But it was, the, it was the competitive part of it where you have all these people who are like, that just doesn't seem right. And I get it. Like the basketball, it was the perfect basketball system for him. The floor was so open, playing with such great players. It would make everything easier. And then he would win the championships. He would win the championships that we as fans and media members had criticized him, A, for not winning, and B, put so much value on that. It made the, the, the idea of winning championships more important than anything else. And what it did was that it created this decision where Durant said, okay, if you want me to go win championships, I'm going to go win championships, and Golden State is the best place for me to go win championships because I fit in best with that style of basketball. And, But it was the competitive part of it that really irked a lot of people, and it irked me too because it was like you, this team had just knocked you out. They won 73 games. Don't you want to do everything you can to come back and beat them? And not? It was, it was like you go join your – went and joined the enemy, And what it led to was a lot of a really interesting, I think, personal growth development for Duran from what he's talked about in that, you know, he told Bill Simmons after he won that first championship, it didn't complete him. It didn't give him that feeling of of whatever feeling he was searching for after winning that first championship. It didn't come. It didn't, like, it wasn't a, a life changer the way he maybe thought it was or it had been hyped up to is that he said, I'm still me. I'm still searching for something. I'm still searching for something else in my career and, and, and in my life. And it didn't help either that he, even though he was awesome in that 2017 finals, was probably better than LeBron on the court, had the great shot in game three, and he was the finals MVP. It, it, it didn't help that everyone said, this is what a this is what you were supposed to do. So it wasn't as impressive because it's the greatest basketball team ever put together. This was supposed to, what you're supposed to do, and people just didn't give Durant the credit that he probably felt like he deserved. And I think that is was a big decision of when he went to go play for Brooklyn, because when LeBron won in Cleveland the year before, it was finally this guy. Even though he had Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, he had three All Stars. He 
it was like, this is truly the one that elevated him to the level of Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Kareem and Bill Russell. And that this, this idea that not all championships are treated the same or counted the same. It was that it almost like that LeBron won championship counted for three or four in our minds. And that Durant won, didn't even really count for one. And I think it, really define this idea of like even in this championship rings culture of where everything matters about how many rings you've you've got or what you do in the playoffs it proved that even if you win championships it may not matter it may not matter with the way that you're thought about it you know it helped on his all-time list of getting into the top 15 in the top 10 because now he has those two championships and the two finals mvps for his resume but it didn't help the way he was perceived, which I think is really interesting as we go forward into this new decade of, okay, obviously championships are important, but is every championship the same? Because Kawhi's one in Toronto was way, you know, we give him a lot more credit and value it way more than his one in San Antonio, even though he won finals MVP in in that one too. So I, I think that's really interesting going forward of how do we value these championships that these guys win and does that have to do with the the situation? And I don't know. It's it'll be an interesting thing to to go forward. Number two, the block shot stop sequence by Cleveland in the 2016 NBA Finals Game Seven. Obviously, this is these are three of the most iconic plays of the decade. They happened all back to back. Um. Everyone knows the story. Cleveland down three to one. Draymond Green gets suspended for having too many technical fouls. The last one being a result of the fact that he kicked LeBron James in the groin, and that was the final straw for the NBA. Said, "Okay, this is this is a tech. This is your last flagrant foul." And hey, you got too many. We have to suspend you. This is the rule. Draymond suspended for game five. Cleveland goes to Golden State, and they win the game. LeBron had 40. Kyrie had 40. Won a great, great game in Game 5. Then they come back to Cleveland in Game 6. Even though Draymond was back, there was no way Cleveland was going to lose this game. They came out, and it was basically over from, from the jump, the energy in that building, the energy that the Cavs played with. They sent it back to Oracle Arena in the Bay Area, in Oakland, for Game 7 of the Finals. And re-watching this game, it's it's a very choppy game. It ended up they were stuck at 89 points each for a long time and it wasn't a very pretty game by any means but the final plays brought some of the iconic moments you have the bronze block against Andre Iguodala which is the defining play of his career be the first thing be the top moment on every highlight chart of LeBron James's career for the rest of his life it was a defensive play, which is so rare from these super-duper stars. And he blocks that shot, one of the greatest blocks you've, you've ever seen. And you could listen and talk to anyone about it who was there at the arena, or you listen to Brian Windhorst tell Bill Sims about it, about all the little intricacies of showed LeBron's brilliance of never giving up. It's his chase-down block. He goes up, he blocks it with his right hand, but he knows Iguodala likes to do the reverses, so his left hand is also up, and his left hand hits the rim because he's anticipating how he's going to block it if Iguodala goes for that reverse with his left. J.R. Smith's defense on the play, making making Iguodala go with a layup instead of a dunk. Uh, Windhorse mentioned Iguodala missed a couple free throws right before this. So maybe he didn't want to get fouled. So he wasn't going up to dunk it or going into Smith, but that he was just going to try to lay it up. Iguodala's back was also bothering him. That's another what if, but it's all about LeBron's effort on this play where, because when Kyrie took a terrible shot, LeBron was in the deep corner and he gets all the way back down on a two-on-one fast break to block it. Just, just incredible. Then Kyrie comes down and Kyrie hits that three, that sidestep three over Steph Curry to give Cleveland the lead and really break three to four minutes of deadlock scoring. Uh, Just an incredible, incredible shot by Kyrie Irving. Another moment of the LeBron haters will say that a teammate bailed him out. It was Ray Allen who hit the shot and Kyrie who hit the shot, and it was never LeBron who hit that big shot. Well, people forget LeBron hit a big shot in Game 7 of the 2013 Finals against the Spurs, A. And B, this is exactly what teams did against Steph Curry and what they did in years following, which is that Steph Curry is a weak perimeter defender. Kyrie Irving is probably the best one-on-one scorer 
that the Cavs had and and they got him on a switch. They got him on Steph Curry. That was probably the best advantage that they thought that they would have had. And because you can't really double off Irving the same way if James had Curry on him, I think that the Warriors would have sent a, a double uh, to get the ball out of his hands and live with someone else making it. They just – and Kyrie hit an incredible shot. This was the matchup that everyone wanted. It was, it was a good shot. It was a huge shot. And then they come right back down, and Steph Curry gets stopped by Kevin Love with the greatest defensive possession in his career. He moves his feet, keeps him in front. Steph takes a bad, bad shot. They, the Cavs get, get the rebound, and they clinch the championship. The first championship for Cleveland – in 50-plus years, LeBron com- com- delivers on his promise to bring a championship back to Cleveland. And this was the, you know, we just talked about not all championships are created equal. The 3-1 comeback. This is what brought Durant because Draymond Green loses this game and he goes and he's texting Durant from his car like, hey, we need you. We need you for these moments. And it th- this outcome changed the direction of the league because it led to what we just talked about with Durant and, and, and the summer of 2016 and Durant joining the Warriors. And it gave a lot of peace and t- a huge relief off LeBron's shoulders that I think it let him go to the Lakers and do different things in his career that maybe he wouldn't have if he was still searching for this promise for, for Cleveland. And it was a huge, like, he finally did it. He did it. This championship, he's now one of the greatest of all time. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know how much more you, you can say about it. It was, it was the most, it was not the best finals, but I think it was with the most important finals of the decade. Um, and for both teams. So I thought that was really interesting. And the second best moment of the decade. Number one, we can't talk about this decade without talking about LeBron James and without mentioning his decision in 2010 to go and join the Miami Heat, to go leave Cleveland and join the Miami Heat. LeBron created the player empowerment era. By doing this, LeBron uh, took all the criticism, all the heat from the media, the fans, Former players, it was the Durant thing, but on steroids. People thought, if people thought that Durant was bad, go back and remember what LeBron did, what he endured after the decision. And it took a couple years ago till, of all places, the ESPYs, where Rob Riggle put it best for anyone who was still holding out hatred over it or, you know, bad feelings towards LeBron because he decided to go move and do his career somewhere else was that it was like... LeBron James is a multi-millionaire 25-year-old who decided to go move to Miami and live with his best friends. That, I mean, that's basically what people were criticizing, criticizing him for. And there's a lot of things in Ohio where people felt that it was just another example of the best and the brightest leaving Cleveland. Because I guess, you know, people in Cleveland talk about that all the time of it feels like they're always second they're always coming seconds that people always leave and they don't come back. And it was just an example of LeBron was one of them and he left and he started the player empowerment era. LeBron took that criticism and the way he did it was bad. Everyone agrees that the way he did it was bad. The television special was bad. And what it led to was the player empowerment era that we're in now. If the players now have the power over their careers because LeBron paved the way for it to happen. He went to Cleveland. He created the big three. And it, just from a basketball perspective, I brought out such great basketball in that decade because teams had to compete with it. And the same thing with the Warriors is that it brings great, great teams bring out the best from everyone because everyone's trying to compete. And in order to beat the best teams who are great, that you also have to be great. And the decision was just so important with the player empowerment era too because now you have the players are in complete, complete control of the league. They have so much more power. You now have guys demanding trades a year and a half or two years before the contract is, is, is even up, which was just would have been unheard of if you talked about in 2010 that this guy would have basically forced his way out with two years left on his deal and threatening to sit out and the, the role of the Rich Paul as, as the agent and, 
and all this stuff. And none of that would have happened without LeBron James sitting down in early July on an ESPN television special and telling the world that he was going to take his talents to South Beach. So now I'm going to talk about the, the best movies that I've seen this year. Uh, I cut it down to three. The three best movies that I saw this year that were released in 2019 that I really, really enjoyed for a lot of reasons. Uh, and so getting right into it. So the top three movies that I've seen this year. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Quentin Tarantino's movie that came out this past summer. It stars Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie. It is a really well done movie. It's uh, pretty intense as most Quentin Tarantino movies are, but the loose premise of it is that it is kind of... So it's basically these actors in the late 1960s. You have Rick Dalton, who was doing all these... uh, Western TV shows, who's played by DiCaprio, who's like worried that his, there's kind of this come to Jesus moment, he's having a midlife crisis, that his career is coming to an end, and he's being advised to make the spaghetti Westerns. He doesn't really want to do it. It's, you know, he thinks he's a great actor. He doesn't want to do, like, not what he thought was great work. And his stunt double, who's also his best friend and driver, but also not really a best friend, Cliff Booth, who's played by Brad Pitt, uh, basically drives Dalton around Los Angeles because Dalton's an alcoholic and he can't drive anymore because he doesn't have a license. And Booth can't work anymore because the rumor was that he murdered his wife, (laughs) Um, which is just outlandish, but you see, you accept it. And Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, live next door to Dalton. And Obviously, Sharon Tate was killed by the the Manson children. Uh, so immediately you're like, okay, I've heard of Sharon Tate before, but as a 21-year-old who saw this and not really that familiar with the Manson family or the Manson murders going into it, it was really interesting to see, okay, I've heard of this, but like, how does this all connect? Wait, I thought this was like a comedy drama. I thought this was more about Leo and not really about... Um, and not really all about like the Manson family. And there's a lot of great scenes. You have Brad Pitt fighting Bruce Lee. You have Leo and the kid and, and, and the young girl on set. Like Leo starts crying and they're talking about acting together. It's really interesting. And then you have the scene where uh, Brad Pitt shows up at the at the Spawn Ranch where he, where he used to work. And then you just realize this is basically a fantasy story of Quentin Tarantino is putting you in this world and this is his version of, of, of events of this is what he would have had happen. It's a fantasy story based on real life, uh, which made it really fun once you stop trying to think of it. It's like, wait, is this all real? Is this not really a documentary, but like, is he telling like a real story? And you're like, wait, no, this is a, it's loose, including the Manson murders and the Manson family, but it's not, not have, it's not truly about that. It's about that this midlife crisis of, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth and uh, just really good acting and just, it was really, really good. Uh, and I really liked it. I, it's one of those movies where it was really well done and you're like, that was just a great, well done movie. Uh, and the ending is a classic Tarantino ending. Uh, so I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. The next, the, the second movie... Number two on my list of movies that came out in 2019 is Booksmart. Booksmart is Olivia Wilde's direct directorial debut. It stars uh, Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Dever as two high school students on the verge of their graduation who decide to go to a party that night, the night before before graduating. And it is very, very similar to Superbad in that uh, it's these basically kids who are, are these losers in high school who go to a party for the first time. Super bad. It's basically the quest to go get the beer and then the quest to go get go to the party. And in Booksmart, there's no alcohol involved in going to you know the, the quest for the ID. There is no McLovin scene, but it's the okay. How do these guys? How how do, how do these girls get to this party and have this last night of fun? And it's. 
the funniest movie I've seen this year, maybe one of the funniest movies I've seen in a really long time. It is brilliantly, brilliantly done. Feldstein and Dever are incredible. They are rising stars. Uh, and they, it was, it's, it's a really heartfelt movie, ridiculously funny movie at times. It's hits every emotion. It's a great, great, uh, it's a great, great friendship movie. It's, it, it's a really, you know, encaptures the emotions of graduating high school and what, and, and, and what that means. And, not just and, and really for their friendship, and that's what the best part about Superbad is: is that Superbad's really funny. But it's about these two friends who are going to be going to different colleges, very far away from each other, and it's how do they grasp with that? And it all plays out in this one crazy night of a, of adventure. And you have Amy and Molly, you have Boo Dever and, and Feldstein, who have a huge fight at the party about how. Amy wants to to leave and she calls me you know, Malala is the code word where like you have to do whatever I say like you just have to do it and Feldstein refuses and it's a huge fight between them about all this stuff and it resolves because Amy somehow gets uh gets arrested so Molly has to go bail her out and then they go to graduation they realize that hey like that was that was wrong and they they come back together and realize their friendship is is even stronger than than it was before. So it's a it's a really really good movie. Uh, I highly highly recommend everyone sees it, uh, and it will be a cult classic for for years to come. Number one, Avengers Endgame. This was the best movie that I saw that was released in 2019. It uh, it is the culmination of the Marvel MCU universe and that story arc. It is a three-hour action adventure where, if you haven't seen Infinity War, sorry, spoiler, uh, Thanos snaps his fingers at the end of Infinity War and kills half the universe's population. So the Avengers, five years after that, have to go and try to undo what Thanos did. And it leads to them traveling through time, through the quantum realm, thanks to Ant-Man. Who would have thought that when the MCU started with Iron Man and Captain America, that Ant-Man and Ant-Man's abilities would be the defining factor in defeating the most powerful villain in the universe and in the Marvel story arc. And uh, it's really good. It's really fun. If you love these movies, it's a really big deal. I grew up watching these movies. Uh an emotional attachment. I remember going to see Iron Man, my friend Graham and his dad in 2008 when we were 10 years old. And it was awesome. It was a great movie. And then you have all these superhero movies coming out. It's a huge part of me growing up was watching these movies. And it's really good. It's really fun. It's really nostalgic. There's a lot of callback to earlier moments in, in the movies as they're traveling through time and just with different events. And it culminates the huge battle in Wakanda where at this time they win. This is the one in 14 million that Doctor Strange produced said that they had a chance of winning in Infinity War. And it ends with Tony Stark stealing the Infinity Gauntlet off Thanos' hands and snapping his fingers, killing Thanos, and undoing Thanos' snap from the previous movie. And it's really important because it kills Tony Stark. In, in, in his effort, Tony Stark sacrifices himself to save the world. And that's really important because Tony Stark started the entire MCU with his Iron Man movie, and it was it's a bookend that he was the one to end it. And it's and it's hard to to think of the MCU ending with 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 Tony Stark alive, and because it's you know he's the guy who would always want more Iron Man. So it's like he's died. It's the bookend to this chapter of it started with Tony and it ends with Tony. Uh, it's definitely emotional at times. If you love these movies, it's a great, great movie. It's out of your chair, cheering movie. Uh, so that was really, really good. So if you haven't seen those movies, I highly recommend. Uh, I also highly recommend Uncut Gems. That was on the verge of making the list. Uh, I'm still digesting it, and going to probably I'm going to probably go see it again. But that will probably be end up being number three on this list. Uh, probably over Once Upon a Time in Hollywood once I fully digest it because I thought that was a really interesting, really good movie by uh, the Safdie brothers starring Adam Sandler. So hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'll be back later this week with Taylor to talk NFL playoffs and maybe talk a little college football and maybe uncut gems. Who who knows? We're going to talk to Taylor about what he wants to, about what he's feeling and 
you know, like, like really excited to, to head into 2020 with you guys. Thanks, everyone. We had a big 2019 here. Obviously, Kelly and I started this last February, and obviously, you know, Kelly's uh, can no longer do uh, the podcast, but we, hey, we're just keeping forward to 2020. We're going to maybe try some new things. We're going to see what the, where this decade goes. We're going to see, uh, hopefully, podcasts is still a really huge thing in, in, in the next couple years, and who knows? I mean, it's just been a lot of fun doing. We're not slowing down. We're going to keep going and keep recording and keep pumping out this content. And we just want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, wish everyone a very happy and healthy new year. And we'll talk to you guys later this week. So everyone take care and make it a great day.